a listener production. There's a wonderfully informative website, Our World in Data. I've been using it throughout this series. I'll link to it on the website because it's full of all sorts of useful facts, such as the breakdown of the sources of carbon emissions in Australia by category. And top among these is electricity and heat. That's why we've spent the last two episodes doing a deep dive into how we can thoroughly and painlessly decarbonize electricity generation here in Australia. We can do that, and we can make ourselves richer by doing that. Now, the third in this list is transport, and that's why this podcast continues to be obsessively focused on the transition to electric vehicles. Electric vehicles aren't the future anymore. They're the present. Petrol vehicles, well, they're the past. That wasn't true when this podcast launched back in 2017, but times change. And transport may well and truly be in hand. But the second biggest contributor to Australia's emissions, this one looks a bit harder. Agriculture contributes almost a third of Australia's total greenhouse gas emissions. Put simply, growing our food is accelerating the warming of the planet. G'day, I'm Mark Pesci. The coming next billion seconds will be the most important in human history as we make a series of decisions that shape our future and the future of our planet. In this special series, we're taking a look at the nature of the problem before us. How can we make the transition to sustainability? In this episode, we're setting our sights on the oldest of the technologies of civilization, agriculture. We're examining how we can accelerate its transition into sustainability, doing the best for ourselves and the planet that's coming up on the next billion seconds. In our last episode, we sat down with Australian inventor and visionary Saul Griffith, whose plan to electrify everything presents an easy and clean path to sustainability for our homes and small businesses, but not for our farms. And on that topic, Saul, well, he provided a most interesting bit of data. Here's the funny vegetarian statistic of today. For each kilogram of cow meat we make, a little over one kilogram of methane is produced by said cow farting and burping. What I found funny is you could barbecue the piece of meat about 25 times over using the methane from, you could, you could baste your steak in its own farts. It's a bit macabre, but yes, you could barbecue your steak using the gas generated by the cow as it digested the grass that would become your steak because that's the way cattle work. In the ruminant stomach where methane is produced, that's a result of a microbial consortium that turns fibrous foodstuffs like grass and, and other feeds into utilizable energy products for the animal. So methane is a waste product in that, but it's not actually the bacteria that digest the fiber that produce the methane. So they produce nutrients that are used by these methanogens that 
utilize carbon dioxide and hydrogen in a reductive process for their own energy needs. So it's a bit of a handshake there. And then they produce methane as a waste product. So it's a, a multiple effort. But that actual production of methane isn't necessary for the animal. That's CSIRO scientist Dr. Rob Kinley. He knows a lot about ruminants, animals who chew grass and then send it down to one of their stomachs for further digestion by their gut microbes. It's the gut microbes generating all this methane. Methane is a powerful greenhouse gas. It's at least 25 times better than carbon dioxide at holding heat in. And those animals, they're making quite a lot of it. A dairy cow can generate up to 400 liters of methane a day. Times around, oh, 25 million head of cattle here in Australia. So that's as much as 10 billion liters of methane every single day. And this is one big reason why agriculture is such a huge contributor to Australia's emissions. Fortunately, Rob Kinley's found a solution for that problem. Well, my beginnings in this story do go back to Canada with a forward-thinking farmer who had some coastal property. There was seaweed that would roll up on the beach there, and they would access that for their animals. And they noticed over a, a good long time that the animals that were getting seaweed were just better producers. So you get a little more milk out of them and you get what he called rip-roaring heats. So their reproductive success was much greater. If you don't think that's important, think of the fact that no calf, no milk. They also noticed that there was very little or a much lower incidence of mastitis, which is an infection of the udder. So there was a bit of an immune response there. And he said they were just better handled animals. They were just more docile, easier to manage. So he noticed the big difference when he started supplying the seaweed to the rest of his animals, and they very quickly caught up. And lo and behold, there was close to 20% reduction in methane production when the seaweed was present in the diet. That was my light bulb moment. 20% back in those days, around 2006, 20% reduction was huge. I figured, well, what if we could find a seaweed that could do better than that? And that's when my global search started. We took all of the seaweeds categories, the reds, greens, browns, and even freshwater macroalgae, and made a wide selection of the types of chemistry that they represent. We got some candidates from those and produced a screening step that showed us that at the dose level or at the inclusion level that we were using provided a universal reduction in emissions. The seaweed Rob discovered, known as asparagopsis, it's basically a bit of a biological miracle. I couldn't see any methane at all. It wasn't just reduced. It was completely gone. So I said, okay, there's a mistake here. We had a leak. The instrument was broken. The needle, the valve, something went wrong. So I did it over again. And even on the second time, I didn't believe it. It was thought to be unheard of that you could take methane out completely without killing the system. You mix a bit of it into the feed of a steer or dairy cow, and they stop making methane. We just take raw seaweed, give it a rinse in seawater, freeze dry it, and crumble it into a powder 
and mix it directly into the feed. But you see a problem right away with that statement. We're mixing it into the feed, which means that the animals have to be getting a formulated feed. In North America, there's heaps of dairy animals on TMR. TMR is a total mixed ration formulated by the producer to supply the needs of the animals based on the bulk of the feed. The seaweed just sort of slips in there in those TMRs. And if you got something sticky like molasses to make it adhere to the feed even better, then you have a perfect system. The next group you would hit would be supplemented animals. A good example of that would be Australian dairy systems, where while they're in or near the barn for milking, they're getting a supplemented material to improve their productivity. And there's an opportunity to mix it in with that as well. We're getting more evidence around supplemented animals. But now we, to crack that nut, the hardest system to get into, which represents many more animals in Australia than on feedlots and dairies, probably about 10 times as much, about 90% of the ruminant livestock in Australia are out on those big paddocks the size of small countries. So how to get a supplement to them is a problem for any supplement. As long as we have the opportunity to feed the seaweed to the animal as an additive in their diet, we can almost eliminate methane production. Sounds great, right? But there is a catch. Supply of seaweed is certainly the main barrier at the moment. The limiting factor in this revolution in agriculture, it's the supply of asparagopsis. It needs to be grown in huge quantities so it can be harvested, dried, and then added to the feed for all of these methane-generating animals. It's a problem today, but only because production hasn't scaled. That scaling, though, Rob says, carries its own benefits. We have still, and what will likely continue to be at least a partial supply mechanism is harvesting it wild. And that's a benefit to those areas, particularly near the reefs, where the seaweed can actually smother the reef to some degree. So it's actually beneficial in order to do that. And But it grows back very quickly. So that can be a bit of a cycle. Wherever you grow this seaweed, you can clean the water. So the seaweed itself will scrub the nutrient from the water in its own growth. So in areas around finfish farms or shellfish farms or the effluent end of land-based culture like the prawn industry, all those excess nutrients can now become a secondary income while you're cleaning the water. So that comes back to my favorite slogan that growing the seaweed scrubs and cleans the water, reduces ocean acidity, and can use local labor and even very beneficial to new economies around Aboriginal land holdings, and then can be used as a very dramatic reducer of emissions from the red meat and dairy industries, both helping the image, but also greatly reducing agriculture's contribution to greenhouse gas inventories that reflect directly into climate change. This looks like an ideal virtuous cycle grow the seaweed to clean the water, use that clean water for fisheries, all the while harvesting the seaweed to make feed for animals that radically cuts their methane pollution. This plan has everything. 
And long before the end of this decade, we'll be seeing cows everywhere throughout Australia and then around the world on a diet featuring a supplement of asparagopsis. So that's sorted. In a moment, we'll look beyond animals and into the future of food. In Series 4 of the Next Billion Seconds, we did a two-part episode where we looked at the future of meat. We didn't focus on the sustainability of these new meat and meat substitutes. So I went back to a few of our guests from that series to ask them about the sustainability of their approaches. If they're truly the future of food, we have to know that they're sustainable. So first, we touch base with George Pepew, who's Vow Foods CEO and is mastering the art of vat-grown meats. These are cells that are taken from an animal, generally without killing it, that are then cultured. And you can kind of think of them as being cultured in tanks that are similar to the fermentation tanks used to make beer. It all sounds a little complex and energy-intensive. If we think about conventional agriculture for a second, that takes in an enormous amount of energy, but it's just not coming from electricity. Is We employ the sun to grow green plants that we either feed to animals or we use those green plants and convert them into some kind of usable food. We as a species are getting much, much, much better at generating energy from the sun and other sources, which means we can, instead of using plants to convert that energy into biomass, is we can use other biological systems that are of our own design. The total net energy of something like a cultivated meat or a cultured meat production ends up being really, really similar, but much of that is coming from electricity generated by humans rather than energy that's come straight from the sun. If George is correct, then cultured meat could be as efficient as meat grown within an animal. But we and basically every other food tech company on the planet have to make really deep commitments to sourcing renewable carbon neutral or ideally even carbon negative energy to make the necessary impact that we want. If we run our plant on coal generation, we're not solving any of these problems related to the environment and agriculture and its impact, we are continuing to exacerbate them. And so when we think about commercial or even pilot scale production, we have to be doing so in a place where low cost renewable energy is available. And that's the case for all modern food technology companies. Agriculture that requires energy inputs, and that's basically all agriculture. It's only going to be as clean as those inputs. If the inputs are dirty, like coal-fired power or diesel, then the product will be dirty. And I heard a similar story from Sebastian Eckersley-Maslin. He's founding an agricultural startup named Falome, which focuses on vertical farming. Vertical farming is around creating a system for agriculture that revolves around stacking shelves of plants in a, in a warehouse or an urban environment. At Phylone, we use uh, robotics, genetics, and artificial intelligence collectively to be able to create a system that is reliable, sustainable, and predictive. And the predictive is quite important because predictive agriculture means we have less waste and we can satisfy demand as it approaches us, as it comes to us. The farms of the future, they might not look a lot like the farms of the past. They may look a lot more like an Amazon warehouse with robots zipping about, tending plants, harvesting them, then packing them off to market. But is that efficient? One of the negatives of vertical farming is that we use artificial lights, so LED technology, artificial lighting to provide the light energy to our plants. And because we're stacking our plants 10, 20 even sometimes 30 shelves high in a warehouse, we're using a lot of lights in a small amount of space 
to be able to grow our plants. One of our larger farms would consume up to 6 million kilowatt hours of energy per year, which is basically a small town worth of electricity. Really, when you're sort of comparing this against traditional agriculture, the big difference for us is the source of electricity, where we're actually uh, deriving the electricity from and how that's generated. It all comes down to how the electricity is generated. If we use our electricity generation as coal, then vertical farming on just electricity alone is around eight times worse than traditional agriculture. If we switch to gas, we are four times worse. If we switch to gas with carbon capture, uh, then we're about on par. But if we flip to renewables, we only consume 7% of the total energy generation compared to traditional agriculture i.e. we are 15 times better. And that, that's looking at the total picture there of energy use. We can have really efficient agriculture, vat-grown meats and delicious vegetables, but to do that, we have to electrify everything with renewable energy. That's going to take some time. We're going to see a generational transition away from the forms of agriculture that generate carbon emissions toward forms that will be a lot more efficient if we have enough renewable electricity. But that's not all that's going on. We're also changing what we eat. Now, last year, we talked to Nick Hazel. He's the CEO of V2 Food. We talked to him just before his plant-based mints became a staple item on supermarket shelves across Australia. The traditional way meat is produced is you make feedstock, you grow it, and when you grow that feedstock, there's a lot of inputs. There's tractors, there's fertilizers, there's pesticides, there's, there's logistics. And then you feed that feedstock into an animal who then converts it into meat. Now, they do it really inefficiently. 20 kilos of feedstock could produce one kilo of meat. Now, plant-based meat is different because actually half a kilo of soy could produce a kilo of meat. So we're between sort of 40 times, maybe 20 to 40 times more efficient than an animal to produce meat. And that means that our carbon footprint um, today for V2 food would be about two and a half kilos of carbon per kilo of meat. And a kilo of beef, for example, would be 40 to 70 kilos. Um, 70 would be the worst case, feedstock only pretty much, and 40 would be grass-fed and uh, finished off, if you like, in feedstock. Enormous difference. And if you could imagine that we would change the game in terms of how we make our meat, that is going to make the single biggest change in our carbon dioxide output. Job number one, reduce meat consumption. And if you can make that meat from plants, then you're making an enormous difference to our carbon footprint. If we Put meat aside, and this is probably not a binary thing where you suddenly pivot from being an omnivore to a vegan, but where we all find a new mix, a sustainable mix of protein sources. If we do that, then the emissions generated to grow the feed that's fed to the animals to grow the meat, all of that just vanishes. So now we have four different approaches to radically rethink agriculture. We can add asparagopsis seaweed to cattle feed. We can create vat-grown meats using renewable energy. We can vertically farm all sorts of plants, again, using renewable energy. And we can substitute plant-based proteins for meat. Some of these rely on farmers and entrepreneurs taking up these practices. Some of these rely on the decisions that we make, but all of it 
All of it is a transition that we're all part of. So the final word here goes to Werner Fugersberger. Werner has been researching and developing new plant-based proteins for several years. He's learned that this is something we all need to be working on together. In this new environment, we all got to work together. The meat industry, the plant-based supply, protein suppliers, the sale-based meat manufacturers, hybrid meat developers, and whatever other new discoveries we eventually will make in that space. We've got to find ways to ensure that every person in the world gets to eat without ruining the planet. That's, for me, what we've got to defend. We've got to defend the planet, not just our business. So many competing visions for sustainable agriculture. Which one is going to win? Well, if we're smart, all of them. In our final episode, we'll draw together all the lessons we've learned on our tour of Australia's sustainable future and ask exactly what we can do today as individuals, as a nation, and as a species to make the greatest impact. That's our next episode. The Next Billion Seconds was written and presented by Mark Pesci, producer Ed Gooden, and sound production by Darcy Thompson. Big thanks to Saul Griffith, Rob Kinley, George Pepew, Sebastian Eckersley-Maslin, Nick Hazel, and Werner Fugersberger for making the time to come on to our show. If you like this show, hit the subscribe button. And if you know someone else who might like it too, please share it with them. For more about the topics in our show, including links to the story about Rob Kinley's amazing seaweed, visit our website at nextbillionseconds.com. This is Mark Pesci, thanking you for listening. Listener.